Good morning, everybody. Morning. We will be getting started in just a few minutes here. Thank you everyone for joining us. Hey, everybody, I'm having some technical difficulties. I hope you can hear me. Um, anyway, my video won't work for the life of me. I don't know what's going on here. But anyways, we're gonna go. Um, we um, welcome to our November virtual general membership meeting. Let's start off today by giving a big thank you to all of our affiliate members for all that they do for us and the association. Um, a couple upcoming events are, of course, if you want to get your broker's license, we have GRI 2 course, and that will take place in early December. So watch for the dates on that and get signed up. Um, we do have a discount code if they're interested and want to get logged or want to get signed up for For that. Um, when you do so, um, you can get a discounted rate if you use that discount code, but I'm pretty sure it's season's greetings. Um, also, our virtual code of ethics class with Deanna DeRussell is on December the 10th. Um, so, uh, yeah, two hours of legal con ed um, through Riemann's, uh, Riemann Robinson's presentation today. Um, stay logged in to participate in all of the poll questions. Um, in order to re receive your Con Ed credit. Also make sure that you're on the main screen for your computer, not, then you will not get Con Ed credit on that. Um, also um, at the end of each segment, Tracy, 
content that we're going to cover today, please put your questions in the Q&A end of every segment. We will be answering the questions. Do not put them in the comments. There's too many comments to keep track. Yeah, can you hear me? Oh, Amanda? Um, I, we can hear you now. Your audio is just cutting in and out pretty bad. Tracy, it shows me that you're talking, but we cannot hear anything at all right now. Oh, my video don't even work. Do you want to do the, does somebody else want to do the start? I don't know what's really, maybe I need to reset my router. I'm sorry, Tracy. I don't know what's going on either. If you'd like, I can I can do the intro. Okay, this is Amanda with Glar. I'm going to take over for Tracy with the intro. Um, I know that that was breaking up a little bit. I apologize for that. Uh, I want to say thank you to all of our affiliate members for everything that they do for the association and for its realtor members. Uh, she, Tracy mentioned we have a GRI2 class coming up in early December where you can get your broker's license or at least get a step closer to getting that. And GLAR members receive $200 off that registration. Uh, so if that's something you're interested in, use the code Seasons Greetings. And I put that in the chat if you guys missed that, that's Seasons Greetings. Today's class is worth two hours of legal con ed. So um, please stay logged in the entire time and participate in all poll questions if you would like to receive those two hours. Um, we also have Code of Ethics coming up in December. So keep your eyes open for more information on that. We have CPAs from Raymond here today to tell us everything that we need to know about taxes. So thank you for joining us. I am going to hand it over to Julie, who is the Director of Financial Operations at the Association, and she is going to get us started with our meeting this morning. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. Good morning. Um, so this morning, I'm just going to take a couple of minutes and um, share with you a really cool tool that um, the, the National Association of Realtors um, has provided for you guys. Um, Amanda, can you allow me to share my screen? Yes, you should be able to share your screen. And uh, just so you know, Julie, your video is not on. Yeah, it also said I wasn't allowed to, um, it has said the host had stopped my video. So I thought maybe you just didn't want to see me. <laughs> Busted. Go ahead, Julie. <laughs> you should be able to share now. Awesome. No, it doesn't appear that way. It still says it stopped, but can you guys see my screen? 
Yes, Julie, we can now. Thank you. Perfect. Awesome. Okay. <clears throat> so um, the website that I want to direct you guys to is financialwellness.realtor. And this um, is just a fantastic tool to help you guys. Um, you know, you've got irregular income and you don't have an employer who um, provides for you a um, 401k or any kind of retirement options. And so um, the National Association of Realtors has created this, this financial wellness center um, that has just a lot of great questions and answers. Um, I'm just going to profile it for you real quick before we turn it over to Raymond. So um, you're going to click sign in. If you've never registered before, you'll click on register. All you need is your nerds ID and your last name. And then once you're in, it takes you um, to all of these questions. I am a big proponent of um, budgeting and I know that that's challenging when you have um, an irregular income and also you know, having any kind of idea what's coming, there are, there are all kinds of questions and answers. Um, how to start a budget? What kind of savings account? How much money should I have in a reserve? Um, maybe you're to the point where you're wanting to invest in real estate um, for, for income, not just for living. Um, there's all kinds of goals and um, how do I do it? How do I, what's the advantage? What are the differences? What am I allowed to do as a real estate agent? And like I mentioned also, you know, retirement planning, what kinds of options are available to you? Um, what's the difference between an IRA and a 401k? How do I set up a retirement account? Um, as I end my career or start working towards the ending of my career um, and I still want to make some money, how do I, how do I plan for that? What is, what is succession planning and what do I do? What's my best practices? And then, um, you know, in addition to that, there's, you know, common questions and essentials and tools and calculators. Um, but you can also set goals for yourself. The National Association of Realtors, this website has created a set of um, goals that, you know, maybe you want to start with, but then you can also add to them yourself. Um, you know, so, you know, your first step is probably consult a financial professional and make sure you've got some money set aside for emergencies and um, make a plan to pay off debts. And then you can track these goals as you go along. Um, as well as adding custom goals. Um, and then there's also this financial journey where it will take you through um, a set of questions. It's, it's kind of a, a, a little bit of a process where you, um, it'll say, oh, I want to, if I want to invest in real estate investment, what does that do to my current cash, my future earnings and um, my, my overall happiness as they describe it. Um, so this is um, just, it's a, it's a really fun tool to play with, you know, see what you can do, but I'd highly recommend checking this out, financialwellness.realtor. And um, if you have any questions, 
they have lots of places, you know, lots of people that you can contact here on the site. If you want to talk to me about anything, I'd be happy to talk to you as well. Um, and then at this point, I am going to turn the, the mic and the camera and the screen sharing over to um, our professionals at Raymond. Um, we have today with us both Andrew Rose and Robert Nelson. Um, both are CPAs and um, tax experts at, uh, with Raymond. Um, I did happen to look at their LinkedIn profiles and Andrew says that he is a business, a business advider, advisor, solution provider and dot connector. So that's really fun. And Robert is the tax manager, is a tax manager at Raymond. So at this time I will pass control over to them. Perfect. Thanks, Julie. Can you, can everyone hear us or hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Can you I hear me as hear well, Julie? Yes, I can hear you as well. Okay. Yeah. As Robert just mentioned, we don't, uh, we're not able to turn on video. So this um, nice brand new sports jacket that I went out and bought yesterday for this presentation uh, apparently has no value now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can everyone see my screen here that I'm sharing? I can see your screen. Okay, perfect. Um, so thanks, Julie, for that introduction. Um, you know, as she mentioned, I'm a, I'm a tax manager here at Raymond. Um, been working in, uh, you know, the public accounting space for about seven years now. Um, and as most of you are probably aware, um, 2020 had a lot of updates for, from a tax perspective, um, you know, mostly related to COVID and um, this CARES Act. Um, so really we would like to give you an overview of that. Um, and really at, at the end of this training, hopefully um, you have a good understanding of what the tax impacts and some planning mechanisms that resulted from uh, the COVID pandemic um, and also uh, learn the tax implications that arose from um, Secure Act and some other recent proposed legislation um, related to retirement plans. And then um, just hopefully identify some other various tax planning opportunities um, that are available for, for you. So um, if you have any questions, just let us know while we present and uh, we'll do our best to address those as we go. Um, so some of the items we'd like to talk about here, um, specifically the impacts from COVID and the CARES Act, um, this payroll tax deferral that has been um, mentioned pretty frequently, um, you know, some of the unemployment updates, PPP loans and, you know, the whole forgiveness process, um, the, the SECURE Act that was passed at the end of 2019, or 2018, um, and a new uh, retirement proposal that's currently working its way through Congress as we speak. Um, and then some other items such as, you know, cash basis, cash basis method for uh, taxpayers, um, some depreciation considerations, uh, home office deduction, um, and if we have time, the entity choice discussion. Um, 
So first, the CARES Act. Um, a lot of developments here um, in 2020. Uh, first one we like to talk about is the NOLs, or net operating losses. Um, so if you're aware, prior to the CARES Act, NOLs were um, basically, you were not allowed to carry any NOL back. Um, and you were really required to just carry it forward indefinitely until it was fully used up. Uh, was subject to an 80% limitation um, and things like that. And that was a update from the tax reform bill that was passed by um, you know, Trump in Congress at the end of 2017. So really that went into effect beginning um, in 2018. But then, you know, as, as a response to, to COVID and in a way to potentially get some cash back to taxpayers, um, as part of the CARES Act, Congress basically reinstated this carry back for net operating losses. Um, and instead of going back to the previous two year rule, uh, they made it a five year carry back. Um, and it was retroactive to the 2018 um, tax year. So for 2018, um, basically taxpayers were allowed to send or carry back their NOLs um, to the five previous years, basically 2013, 14, 15, um, 16, and 17. Um, and it, it's important to note that this carryback is the default option. So it, it's, um, you're, you're required to carry it back first before you carry it forward, um, which could cause an issue for some taxpayers as, you know, they may have had smaller income in prior years that um, basically may make it not as advantageous to carry it back as, as if they're we're allowed to just carry it forward. Um, but taxpayers are, are allowed to elect out of the carryback um, if they have one of those situations. Um, however, that election must be made with their tax return and they must attach a statement for it to be, for it to be valid. Um, now this caused an issue with 2018 tax returns as you know when the CARES Act was passed in March of 19 or 20, most people had already filed their 18 returns and many had already filed their 19 returns, um, basically not allowing them to elect out of this carryback. So their remedy really for this would be to apply for a quick refund, um, which is a form that you can file for all taxpayers um, within 12 months of the year 12 months after the end of your year. So for an individual, um, you know, their 18 return, if they had a net operating loss, they could basically file this quick refund um, by the end of 2019. And instead of having to amend all their prior year returns, basically just uh, claim a refund as a result of this carryback. Um, since that, that, deadline had already passed for uh, the 2018 tax years. Uh, Congress did allow a six month extension through the end of June 
um, for taxpayers to get a refund for their 2018 tax returns. However, um, you know, that is now expired. So if there is any um, benefit for a taxpayer to carry back an NOL, or if they're able to, um, they now technically have to amend that 2018 return. Um, and for 2019 return, um, hopefully everyone's already filed their returns by now. Um, and if they have, and it did have an NOL to be carried back, they still have till the end of this year, um, you know, December 31st to um, claim that refund. Um, so if, uh, if they're unable to do that quick refund form, um, they would just have to amend, unfortunately. Um, but that is available for taxpayers through 2020. And then beginning 2021, uh, we revert back to the tax law that was passed at the end of 17, basically disallowing all carry back and um, only allowing a carry forward for future years, unless something changes. Um, I do see a comment uh, about the presentation slides and uh, we can make these available um, after the session. We can email them out um, if that's helpful. Hey, Robert, I would just add that, you know, there's if if anyone has a net operating loss, you know, there's some planning that goes into this in terms of whether you take it back or you take it forward. Um, so it's not a it's not an easy decision to make. And especially given the fact that we still at this point don't know um, <laughs> what our tax regime will look like going forward, uh, you know, with with Senate retaining control and um, what appears to be continued gridlock in Washington, it looks probably slim that we're gonna have some major tax overhaul. Uh, so if you have the opportunity to take a, a net operating loss back, you know, at this point, you're probably, depending on the rates you paid, you know, back in some of those early years, I mean, we're going back to 13 and 14 and, um, and on. So, you know, those were pre-tax cuts and jobs acts here. So that your rates may be higher. So you may not want to elect to take it forward. You may actually want to take it back. But I mean, there, again, there, there's, there's a, a lot of planning and a lot of analysis that goes into whether I take it back or I take it forward. It seems like a pretty easy question to answer, but of course it's not. Thanks, Andy. Um, so the excess business loss limitations, um, this is similar to net operating losses, but specifically for um, non-corporate businesses. So um, or in, basically, this is for individual taxpayers. Um, and, and this rule limited their business losses that they're allowed to take um, to, if they're a single taxpayer, to $250,000 or if they are married filing joint, you know, $500,000. Um, and, and this loss is, is, is basically the, the net business loss. So their, their net deductions from a business um, over their net income from a business, um, they're only allowed to take up to $250,000. And everything over that is basically disallowed and treated as an NOL carry forward um, to future years. Um, the, the CARES Act suspended this 
limitation for 2018, 19, and 20. So in essence, it, it doesn't start until 2021. Um, again, this is a, a retroactive rule to where, where most people have already filed 18 and, and many had already filed 19. Um, and it's not elective. So if you had this limitation on your 2018 or 19 return prior to the CARES Act being filed, um, the only way to correct this would be to amend your 2018 and 19 return. Um, and, and that's not elective. You can't um, basic, it's, it's not a choice. So if, if you did it, you have to amend. Um, and the CARES Act also made some changes with the calculation of this limitation starting in 2021. Um, Basically, these changes that doesn't include W-2 wages um, in, in the calculation where the prior rules um, didn't specifically include W-2 wages, but I think that was the general understanding of most tax practitioners. Um, also specifically excludes net operating loss deductions, um, qualified business income deductions, which is that 20% pass-through deduction available to um, owners of pass-through entities and um, self-employed individuals for their trades or businesses, and um, also clarified on what capital gains are included in this calculation. Um, so basically, there's, there's nothing taxpayers have to do with this other than amending 18 and 19 returns until next year. Um, 2021, and we, we have a quick example here to kind of illustrate the, the new calculation. Um, so basically assume you have a single taxpayer in 2021, so they would be subject to that $250,000 limitation. If they have wages of $100,000 and then they have a business loss of $400,000 and you know part of their um, investments in business activities, they have this flow through deduction of $25,000. Under the old rules, they would have had a, a net loss of 325,000, which is the 100,000 of wages minus the 400,000 of business income and also minus that um, QBI deduction. And that 325,000 would have um, resulted in a 75,000 disallowance over that 250K limit. Um, and this 75K disallowed amount would then be included in the 2022 calculation as a NOL deduction, um, basically reducing the amount of um, losses that the taxpayer would be allowed to take. Um, and under the new rules, this these same facts result in a loss of $400,000 because they don't factor in any wages. So there's a bigger disallowance here um, of 150,000, but then this 150,000 amount that's disallowed would not be included in the 2022 calculation. Um, so taxpayers wouldn't get dinged for it twice. Um, so again, this is an area that um, requires a lot of, of planning and um, pretty can get pretty complex with the calculations. 
Um, so if you run into this issue, um, we would definitely recommend that you consult with a, a tax advisor or your CPA um, to make sure that you're handling it appropriately. Um, so one of the one of the big issues that came out of that Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed in 2017 was what um, we call this retail glitch. Um, and basically it was an error put into the tax law. Um, you know, it, and if you guys recall back to 2017 when Congress was passing this law, there was a lot of amendments and um, changes on the Senate floor. And if you look at the actual bill that was uh, passed, there's you can see a bunch of writing in the footnotes. Um, so it, it was passed very quickly, very messy, and there were a lot of errors in, in the bill that weren't the intention of Congress. Um, and one of them was this um, qualified improvement property issue. So under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, qualified improvement property, which are basically any improvements made to interior portions of, of buildings, non-residential buildings, um, and th they have to be placed in service after the building was first placed in service. Um, so it has to be an addition or improvement, um, and it cannot be an enlargement of the building. So, um, sorry, I know I just said addition, but what I meant was just an improvement to the interior. You can't increase the square footage um, it can't be related to the elevator or escalator, and it can't be related to the internal structure so um, or framework. So if if a asset or an improvement qualifies under this definition, under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it was defined as a 39-year asset and therefore disallowed from taking bonus depreciation, which was updated to 100% allowed beginning in 2000 or at the tail end of 2017 through 2018 and 19. Um, and they meant for this asset that met this definition to be included as a 15 year property, which would then be eligible for bonus depreciation. Um, so as you can imagine, this was pretty significant issue for for some taxpayers that um, would typically plan to take a hundred percent expense for this asset in the year that it was placed in service but under the prior law they were basically forced to depreciate this over 39 years um, which can can get pretty significant when we're talking about building improvements and and things of that nature um, so the cares act changed this to back to the 15 year property um, and it now is eligible for bonus. Again, this was retroactive to 2018. Um, so basically to fix this, taxpayers would either need to file an automatic method change with their um, 2019 or um, if they've already filed that, their 2020 tax returns, um, which basically trues everything up through the prior year um and fixes it going forward and then um or they would just have to amend their 2018 or 19 tax returns to to claim it as a 15-year asset um, so this was a pretty significant 
benefit to a lot of taxpayers that we, with our client base, went through and did a lot of analysis and um, projects to make sure we were taking full advantage of this acceleration of depreciation. Um, one of the other changes from the CARES Act was um, the, this minimum tax credit for corporations. So prior to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, these minimum tax credits were basically carried forward indefinitely until um, they were able to be utilized to offset a taxpayer's regular tax liability. Um, and this minimum tax was um, basically a rule in place for corporations that um, made them pay a, a minimum amount of tax on their income. So they weren't able to basically wipe out everything with NOLs and deductions um, each year. And so that was repealed with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, but the, the remaining credits that these taxpayers had available, um, basically beginning in 2018, taxpayers were allowed to um, get a refund up to 50% of their credit balance uh, for each year in 2018, 19, and 20. And then whatever was remaining in 2021, um, they would get a 100% refund of the remaining balance. Um, the CARES Act basically made this um, credit, whatever was left, 100% refundable uh, for 2019 tax years. Um, and taxpayers were able to make an election and make it fully refundable for 2018. Um, so unlike the other rules, this wasn't required to be retroactive. Um, and it basically just allowed taxpayers to get this refund now, as opposed to waiting until 2021 to get the remaining balance. Um, another change from the CARES Act was this employee retention credit. Um, so this refundable payroll tax credit is um, a credit up to 50% of the el eligible wages paid um, from you know, beginning March 13th to the end of the year. And these eligible wages um, or to be eligible to claim this credit, the employer basically had to be carrying on a trader business in 2020. Uh, they had to demonstrate that their operations were impacted by, by COVID or um, you know, the, the government orders, or they had to have a greater than 50% reduction in their gross receipts from one quarter or the 2020 quarter to the prior year. So um, basically if they had 100,000 of gross receipts in in Q2 of 19, and then it went below 50,000 of gross receipts in, in Q2 of 2020, they were eligible for um, this credit. Um, and this credit was limited to $10,000 of wages, um, limited up to $10,000 of wages per employee. Um, and these qualified wages it basically depends on the number of employees you have. There's different thresholds. Um, so employers with 100 or fewer employees, um, basically all wages that they paid were qualified wages. But if they had more than 100 employees, um, the wages paid to employees 
for, for time that, that they are not providing services. Um, so the qualified wages, if the employer has more than 100 employees, is basically um, wages paid to employees for that time that they are not providing services due during any qualified quarter. Um, so it's important to note that this, that these qualified wages do include wages, um, you know, payroll wages, compensation, and qualified health plan expenses. And it does not include wages included in other credits. So if um, the taxpayer or the employer is getting a credit for um, family medical and sick leave or some other type of payroll credit, um, they cannot claim this employee retention credit on those same um, those same wages. And then um, to, to claim this credit uh, basically applies to the employer's portion of the FICA tax that they're paying. Um, the excess amount is, of which is refundable. Um, and important thing to know, we'll talk about PPP loans later, but if, if an employer received a PPP loan, um, they're unable to claim um, this credit for any wages at all. Um, and, the, and this re retention credit was available to self-employed individuals. Um, however, they're, they're not able to claim it for um, the, the wages that they pay themselves, so their self-employment earnings, but they are able to claim it for wages that they pay to their employees. Uh, similar to, um, well, in addition to the employee retention credit, there was this payroll tax deferral option. Um, so there was a couple things passed in 2020 because of related to this. There was um, a bill passed in March um, as part of the COVID response package. Um, and then also the executive order passed by um, Trump a couple months ago. Um, so back in March, basically this payroll tax deferral allowed employers to defer paying any of their FICA taxes on payroll from March 27th to the end of the year. Um, now it's important to note that this is a deferral. It's not, um, you know, the, the taxes are still going to be due. Um, it just kind of delays the when, when you have to pay them to the government. Um, so the amount deferred would be due 50% by the end of 2021 and the remaining 50% by the end of 2022. Um, again, employers receiving any type of PPP loan forgiveness are, are not eligible to defer um, any payroll taxes after this forgiveness is issued. Um, and we have started seeing the SBA be forgiving PPP loans um, over the last month or so. Um, so if that's, once that's forgiven, they can no longer um, defer any of these payroll taxes. Um, Self-employed individuals are able to defer uh, the 50% of the social security tax that they pay on their net earnings from self-employment. Um, and they would just do this by reducing their estimated taxes that they pay into um, 
the IRS by that so 50% of the social security um, tax. Um, deferral is uh, calculated prior to any of the other payroll tax credits. So basically this just allows for maximum cash flow to the employer. Um, and employers may defer withholding of social security taxes for employees earning less than $4,000 on a biweekly basis. Um, well, so this, this 4,000 on a biweekly basis, this was part of the um, Trump executive order issued, I think in September. Um, and if an employer decide, opts to do this, they will need to be repaid between January 1st, 2021 and April 30th, 2021. Uh, retirement plans. Um, there were a couple updates to um, allow individuals to benefit from their retirement plans from the CARES Act. Um, it did allow um, distributions of up to $100,000 in 2020 um, if the following um, applied to the individual, um, either that individual, their spouse, or a dependent was diagnosed with, with COVID-19 or they experienced adverse financial consequences due to quarantine, furlough, layoff, uh, their hours were cut or um, you know, they couldn't work because the childcare issue um, or their business was closed or anything due to COVID. Um, so pretty broad um, application here as you know, Michigan, most of the economy was shut down for a period of time. Um, and so a lot of taxpayers were able to, or were allowed to take this $100,000 um, out of their retirement plans without paying a 10% early distribution tax. Um, now, this doesn't mean that these distributions were completely tax-free. Um, taxpayers were, um, taxpayers were able to, um, are still required to pay income taxes on um, these distributions at whatever their applicable tax rate is. Um, but that tax is could either be paid in 2020 or spread uh, evenly over 2020 to 2022. So they would be able to pay that tax over three years. Um, and it also allowed individuals to repay these distributions within three years um, to avoid some of the taxes on there. Um, some of the other retirement plan changes were uh, any loans from 401ks or allowable plans were increased to, or the limits on these loans were increased to the lesser of $100,000 or 100% of um, the individual's vested balance in the retirement plan. Um, and this is operated just like other uh, loans from retirement plans and are required to be repaid um, with the interest um, back into the retirement plan. Another change that helped a lot of individuals was um, a waiver of the 2020 required minimum distributions. Um, so these required minimum distributions upon reaching um, a certain age 
an individual is required to start taking um, distributions out of their retirement plan. And um, what the CARES Act allowed some individuals to do um, was basically waive their required minimum distributions and keep these amounts in their retirement plan or um, roll them into a similar plan um, for 2020 and exclude them from their uh, taxable income. So one, one way to help uh, individuals that didn't necessarily need the employee di or the distribution from their retirement um, and to reduce their tax liability for the year um, just to keep more cash in their pocket. One question, Robert, that I've had come up a couple times with that too is um, just so any, if there's anybody out there that's considered that or, or is considering it, that applies whether you've started RMDs or whether 2020 happened to just be, uh, you know, ironically, it was the first year you were required to take your RMD. So it applies in both cases. Right. Thanks, Andy. Um, so some of the updates to that took place to unemployment, um, basically that gave states the option to extend their unemployment to uh, independent contractors and self-employed individuals. Um, so many people that weren't previously able to benefit from unemployment were able to uh, kind of tap into this system during, during COVID um, and get some benefit for this. Um, I'm sure many of you, many of you are aware there was an additional $600 provided per week to um, eligible individuals um, that did expire at the end of July. Um, and, you know, we don't know if there's going to be any additional legislation passed, um, you know, as, as Andy mentioned, I mean, there, there is still some gridlock. It looks like there's going to be some gridlock um, at Capitol Hill over the next few years. Um, so maybe there'll be another stimulus bill. Um, I know they're working on one, but um, there hasn't been any traction, I think mainly due to the election and just the political climate um, that we've been in. But um, we'll see if, if anything changes there that um, could potentially impact unemployment. But I know Michigan did provide um, some additional um, $300 per week to eligible, eligible individuals um, from August to the beginning of September. Um, so that too has expired. Um, but there are still some benefits available to um, people that are impacted from COVID. Um, the unemployment benefits were extended by 13 weeks. Um, so they were previously up to 26 weeks of benefits that an individual could take. And it was then up to 39 weeks. Um, and there's currently some additional extended benefits available um, if an uh, individual is exhausted the full 39 weeks that they had available. Um, these extended benefits basically provide an additional 20 weeks of unemployment benefits um, that are basically equal to the traditional amount they would have received. Um, based on their earnings. So there's no additional $300 or $600 amounts per week. Um, and those extended benefits will end when um, we drop below the, basically the unemployment, the, the required unemployment rate, which 
I believe is 8% right now. So um, when we drop below that 8%, those extended benefits will, will go away. Can I interrupt uh, for a second before you move on? Yes. Um, so this was prior to the unemployment discussion. I have a question. Um, what happens if deferral is taken on any of these programs and then the business closes prior to the repayment year? Um, so, so you're referring, so if there was a deferral on like the payroll taxes and then the business closed before it was paid back? The, maybe, I'm not sure. I, I gave you everything that I, that I can see. Okay. That's probably what they're referring to. Sounds right. like it. Yeah. I don't, Robert, I don't know if you know, if you know the answer to that. I certainly don't. I have a guess um, that, mm -hmm. you know, it would be immediately, the repayment would be immediately um, accelerated at that point um, because there is no, although there's talk about making that payroll tax deferral permanent and, and essentially allowing taxpayers to, um, uh, it, almost like PPP be forgiven, that has not occurred yet. So, you know, essentially that loan would still be out there and would still be due just like any liabilities for that business when they went out of, out of business. And because payroll taxes are a trust fund type of, of tax, uh, that cannot be shed through bankruptcy. So my guess is, is <laughs> it may be a while after, you know, after you closed your shop, but at some point you're, you're probably going to have to pony up for that, those dollars. Right. Yeah. That's what I would expect as well. Thank you. Um, another question. First of all, before I get to the question, I want to remind everybody that the poll question um, was put up a couple of minutes ago. Please make sure that you're answering that if you want to receive Con Ed credit for today. Um, okay, so another question from the attendees. Um, at approximately what rate is the unemployment payment taxes or is that based on individuals? Looks so, like they're so asking gonna... taxed. Yeah. yeah what rate applies maybe? So yeah, one, yeah, so yeah. I think they wanna know how much how much they're gonna be taxed on, what the, right. what the tax rate will be. Yeah, and that would just be your ordinary tax, you know, tax rate, uh, you know, on a graduated scale. It's, it's hard to answer that question. It would be subject to your ordinary bracket rates. Right, it's basically taxed similar to W-2 wages, um, you know, and the more you have, the, the higher the tax would be, generally yep. speaking. Okay, thank you. All right. And now we'll move on to PPP loans. Um, so let's see. So PPP loans, um, this, this current program, uh, or the, the current program closed um, August 8th, so you're no longer allowed to apply for these loans. Um, now, who knows if there's going to be another wave of stimulus, but um, as of now, there, this is no longer available to, to taxpayers. Um, and we know a lot of individuals um, have ever received these loans. Um, you know, we worked pretty extensively with our client base, um, you know, in the months of March and April. Um, you know, all the way up through July of, you know, getting these loans, navigating through, um, 
using the funds and potentially, you know, getting that forgiveness. Um, but these are, you know, in essence, loans. Um, they do are required to be paid back unless, um, you know, they are forgiven. Um, but they would, if if not forgiven, they will have a one percent interest rate. Um, and uh, if if it was issued prior to June fifth, it, it will have a two year maturity. Um, and if it is issued after June fifth, it has a five year maturity. So that was just one. They passed um, some up. They've been passing updates pretty frequently in this area. Um, uh, we've spent a lot of time kind of in the weeds on this. You know, our, our firm has done you know basically weekly calls into the updates on PPP loan. We have a whole team dedicated to basically focusing on any of these updates um, whenever they come through. Um, and so one of these updates uh, basically extended the maturity uh, for three years um, for taxpayers. And um, unfortunately it didn't apply to all of them. It was just the, the ones issued after that date. Um, in June. And I, Robert, I feel like you were able to, um, and I'd have to go back, but I feel like you were able to work with your um, financial institution who you um, applied for the PPP funds and were essentially able to um, modify it to the five year, but um, I'm, oh, not okay. I'm not 100% positive on that, but I do believe that is an option. I mean, obviously, like you said, if you can get forgiveness, then, then it really becomes a moot point as to what right. the maturity date is. Right. So, so these loan payments uh, were basically deferred for borrowers um, who apply for forgiveness until the SBA forgives the loan. Um, but if they don't apply for forgiveness, um, you know, they use the funds for some other purpose as opposed to, um, you know, payroll and things like that. Basically, um, the the payments would only be deferred 10 months um, after and deferred for 10 months after their cover period, covered period ended, um, which is, you know, eight weeks or 24 weeks um, from the date that they received their PPP loan funds. Um, now, most people are that that I've worked with at least are applying for forgiveness. So we're, you know, kind of not planning on the 10 month deferral. Um, Andy, do you have any clients that aren't applying for forgiveness? No, I'm not aware of any. Um, okay. They're all either at that point where they're filling out the applications or it's filled out and they're waiting for the portals to open or they've already submitted. So, I mean, here we are. You know, we're after, for most people, we're after the 24 weeks. So, I mean, we're at right. that point where everybody should be <laughs> in one of those buckets. Right. A um, couple other things to note on these PPP loans. Um, there were, there was no collateral or personal guarantees required. Um, the government or the lenders weren't required or weren't allowed to charge any fees related in relation to these loans. Um, and I think, Andy, you may know this more, but I think, uh, CPAs weren't required or weren't allowed to, um, assist with the fees 
or, or charge fees as an agent um, and also consult with these. Um, uh, it, was, it was a confusing area there where um, CPAs or other advisors weren't allowed to basically act as the lender um, and process the applications that way and, and also charge a fee. Yeah, I mean, Raymond Raymond did not charge a fee for these loans. So I, I do know that, that there were some firms out there that did. And uh, I think that became a mess because, mm -hmm. you know, they had to submit for reimbursement from the financial institutions. And a lot of the financial institutions refused to pay it. So I, I don't know where that's at, but. Right. It, so um, in order to be forgiven, uh, these funds must be used for um, qualified expenses, which is basically 60% of payroll um, and uh, the, the remaining 40% could be used for rent or um, other qualified expenses um, and could still get forgiveness in that area. Hey, Robert, we got a, I don't know if you wanna take a second to feel, we got about three or four questions here, it looks like. Um, oh, okay. My understanding is that the SBA lending institution may do a blanket forgiveness, but SBA has not worked out the kinks on this yet. I keep getting notices from my lending institution indicating that. Um, I have heard, and there's been talk about a blanket forgiveness, um, but it certainly wouldn't be across the board. Um, you know, it would be, what I've heard is that it would be some threshold and I don't know if the 50,000 was the threshold because, um, you know, I don't know, Robert, if you'll go into this, but um, 50,000 and less essentially got kind of a, uh, uh, a blanket forgiveness, I would call it. You, you've got a simplified form that needs to be filled out. Um, there's, there's a couple things out there that can reduce the amount of forgiveness, namely if you dropped the number of your employees or you cut wages, cut salaries those do not apply to those 50,000 and less. So that's kind of, I think, um, similar to what you're talking about, the blanket forgiveness, um, but there really isn't a blanket forgiveness at this point right now. I mean, everybody has to apply for forgiveness. It just depends right. on your loan size in terms of what you need to do and in, in the mechanics. Um, what size businesses did you find were able to get this PPP loan in our community? This is great news as there was much info that the loans went only to big corporations. Um, <laughs> I would say, Robert, you know, uh, chime in on this. I would say that it was really across the board. I mean, we had some pretty small loans. You know, um, you've got self-employed that were really kind of limited to their 2019 income, uh, which they call the owner. Um, compensation replacement, which for most, if, if you're just self-employed and you don't have any employees, and, you know, you're held, you held on for 24 weeks. That's the uh, 20,833. Right. So that ends up being a pretty small loan. And then I've got some clients that are in the millions, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be part of the SBA audit um, because their, their PPP loan is, is more than $2 million. So it's, it certainly was not only big corporations that got it. I think that's what the news tended to focus on, um, mm -hmm. but that's certainly not what played out. Robert, right. I don't and know I, if you saw the same. 
Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. I, I worked with clients basically that got anywhere from, you know, $10,000, $14,000 of PPP loans all the way up to a couple million. Um, and yeah, the, the bigger, the smaller ones were typically, you know, self-employed or, you know, mom and pop businesses. Um, and then, you know, the larger ones um, were, of course, are, are going to be subject to those audits. Um, but yeah, the, uh, it's kind of across the board, people got these PPP loans. It wasn't just the large businesses, for sure. Next is what happens if you close your business by the end of the calendar year? And I'm assuming that that question revolves around the fact that you took a PPP loan and then you closed your business up. Um, I think you want to have a conversation with your with your financial institution because if you closed it up and you didn't have forgiveness, you you have a loan. Um, now, um, the good news is <laughs> that there were no personal guarantees or collateral associated with that PPP loan, but that doesn't mean that the financial institution and the SBA won't try to claw back uh, those proceeds that were paid to you. So I would be racing to get my application in and get it forgiven. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, all right, is that all the questions we have? I uh, think so, yeah. Okay. Julie, okay. correct us if we're wrong, but it looks like there aren't any right now. That, that's what I see as well. Okay, perfect. Okay, so um, back to the PPP loan forgiveness. So uh, this started, uh, the SBA actually started accepting applications for forgiveness um, at the beginning of October. Um, and uh, I, in particular, have had a few clients that have already applied and gotten their loans forgiven. Um, so they've already sent in their applications and the information that was requested. Um, and the, the lender and the SBA has already given them the stamp that yes, you're forgiven um, and, they're, and they're good and done. Um, but there's still several lending institutions that aren't accepting applications right now, we're still trying to figure out what is needed or um, it's really across the board, um, depending on uh, the different, the amount of the loan you have, where you got your loan, um, what institution you used. Um, so it, it's quite a different, there's many different situations out there um, from what I've seen. Um, and somebody somebody had mentioned in the in the chat or the question and answer that PNC's portal is not open uh, yet, and that is correct. Right. I was I have a client yesterday that we were wrapping up the review of their forgiveness application, and as of yesterday, um, now things of course change quite frequently with PPP, uh, but as of yesterday, PNC was not accepting forgiveness applications. Interesting. Um, so we, we do know that based on the loan that someone's getting, there are various levels to um, the forgiveness and, and what information is required to be submitted. Um, so Andy mentioned that 50,000 threshold, um, and, and that really is um, basically, if you had a PPP loan of 50,000 or less, um, there were, simplified procedures with getting the forgiveness. And basically it was a simplified form um, 
that required minimal information and um, instead of all of the forms and schedules that were required to be attached with the original uh, forgiveness application, um, the simplified form basically just had some certifications and attestations that the taxpayer needed to basically sign off on um, and things like that, saying that they used it for qualified expenses. Um, and then they just had to submit that and basically be eligible for the forgiveness. Um, now that doesn't mean that um, the SBA won't audit them or anything after that. Um, the SBA is able to audit any business that received a PPP loan. Um, however, they did come out and say that any business that received um, a PPP loan over that 2 million threshold would be fully audited. Um, so just because someone received a loan under that 2 million doesn't mean they won't be audited. Um, but it's just, you know, a guarantee over that that you will be for sure. Um, and that, and if you do have that fifty thousand or less, that is a um, that's a two-page form, uh, right. form thirty-five zero eight S is the one that you would use for that. Yep. And it's considerably shorter than the long form. Uh, I think the last time I looked at the long form, it was what eleven or twelve pages long. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty substantial. There's a lot of information that's required to be provided with that. So. Um, this 50,000 is definitely um, beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. It's the closest thing we have to blanket forgiveness right now. Exactly, yeah. Um, so kind of as we talked about, the 50K has simplified procedures. Um, they are exempt from reductions based on, um, you know, full-time employee um, and uh, reduction in employee salaries or wages. Um, Self-employed individuals were able to get PPP loans. Um, and basically what we've seen as they've tried to get um, forgiveness on those is uh, the bank has basically requested the draws that that self-employed owner has made um, during the, the period of their loan and um, you know, just their financials through uh, you know, 2020 um, showing what their profit or loss is. Um, and where their expenses have gone. Um, and um, so under the current law, um, this is a really important thing to note with PPP loans and uh, the related forgiveness. So the current law, any um, expenses related to tax exempt income are not deductible for tax purposes. So if a PPP loan is forgiven, that forgiveness is not taxable that as income for the taxpayer, but as a result, those related expenses that they paid with the PPP loan proceeds are, are not going to be deductible. Um, now, this, this was not the intention of Congress when they passed the CARES Act. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion on, um, you know, if they will change this in future stimulus bills or things like that. Um, but basically, as as the law stands right now, um, if the um, loan is forgiven, 
the expenses paid with those proceeds are not going to be deductible for tax purposes. Now the issue right now is timing. That's the big, the big question mark out there. So, um, you know, it's expected that many PPP recipients will not have official forgiveness from the SBA by the end of this tax year. So where does that leave someone that, that got a PPP loan and used all of the, the funds in a way that they should have for what they should? So do they have the ability to expense those items in 2020 because they essentially don't have exempt income because they have not received forgiveness? And if they do, and they subsequently get forgiveness in 2021, does that mean that those have to flip and all those expenses that you took in 2020, now you have to pick them up as income in 2021? So this is, I would say that's probably one of the biggest issues out there right now because everybody's applying for forgiveness is how does, mm -hmm. how does all this timing, <laughs> how does this all come in play? I mean, there's... Um, there's a, you know, part of this discussion is centered around, um, you know, who, who gets the White House right. and um, do tax rates significantly increase in 2021 so that I took my deductions at a, um, let's just say you took them at, you know, 30% and now I got to pick them up in 2021 and the tax rate is now 35%. Mm -hmm. So I am at a disadvantage now because I had to pick them up because there was no guidance and now I'm having to pay more tax on them. So there's just, um, I'd like to say there isn't a lot of uncertainty still out there with, P with PPP, but there is plenty of uncertainty with this. Right. Robert, yeah, we have a question what... too um, that popped up. Yeah, I see. I see the question. It's, it says, where does someone getting the regular SBA loan uh, without the PPP part stand? Uh, there won't be any forgiveness on those, correct? Um, and my understanding on these is, is those won't be forgiven. The forgiveness was specific to the PPP loans. Um, there was other, um, uh, I guess, support for taxpayers provided that had previous SBA loans. Um, you know, I have a client that had an SBA loan and part of um, the COVID response package was the SBA basically paid six months of their loan um, for them. So it didn't forgive the loan. It didn't, um, you know, not make the payment, but it basically, they did pay six months of the expense that the taxpayer was then not required to pay. But I believe the forgiveness was just specific to PPP loans. Is that um, your understanding too, Andy? Yeah, yeah, that's my understanding that only the PPP has the forgiveness part, but um, the, the idle loans do have that 10,000 upfront advance that was also, I believe, forgivable. And so if you happen to take an idle and a PPP, you had to take a $10,000 haircut on your PPP forgiveness because you essentially couldn't do it twice on the same 10,000. Right. That's the only other one I know of that's forgivable. 
Okay, and then we we have a follow up question. It looks like the the loan will the loan be able to be tax deductible, um, or the will the interest be deductible? I'm assuming that that's related to the SBA paying, um, you know, the six months of expenses for them. Um, and I think that that I I don't know the answer to that for sure. There hasn't really been any guidance that I've seen on that. Um, but I would expect if, if the if the payments that the SBA is making is going to be taxable income, then the expenses would be deductible. Um, but again, if it's if it's not taxable income and the income is deemed to be exempt from tax, then the related expenses uh, would then be non-deductible, similar to the PPP loan. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, if to the extent that you used um, forgivable funds to pay certain expenses, you, right. you likely are not able to deduct those as well. Right. So either way, it's going to, in essence, be a wash um, from a tax perspective, right? So you either pick up the income and then have the related expenses, or you they're both excluded. Right. Yep. So. Okay. Let's see. And then we have a couple other items here um, to talk about. Um, Andy, do you want to cover the SECURE Act? Yeah, I can do that. So the SECURE Act, um, I, forget, I forget what month that came out. It was sometime during the um, either spring or summer of this year. And um, the probably the biggest, one of the biggest parts of it was increasing the age at which point you need to start taking your required minimum distribution um, from an IRA. So that did move from 70 and a half to 72. Um, so if you happen to be in that, uh, you know, 2020, you would, you turned, uh, actually I think if you turned 70 and a half in 2019, you would have had to have taken your first RMD here in 2020. But of course, um, the CARES Act removed that, but um, if you did happen to turn 70 and a half in 2019, then um, you wouldn't have to take that RMD until um, you reach the age of 72. So you've you got a little while there. Um, if you were already taking RMDs, um, you cannot stop taking RMDs uh, short of obviously 2020 and the ability to not take your RMD, but that's the only reason why you would not be able to, to take that RMD. Uh, repealed the age limit for traditional IRA contributions. So historically, um, once you reached the age of required minimum distributions, you were not able to put money into an IRA. So it, it eliminated that. And um, this was a significant change as well. So if you, um, Bequeath your IRA to an individual that is not your spouse. And I do believe, yeah, Robert's got on here. There's there's some other um, accepted individuals, um, namely disabled um, beneficiaries. If it doesn't happen to be one of those particular excluded individuals, um, you have to liquidate that IRA, that inherited IRA within 10 years. Now I do believe it's not um, it's not amortized over the ten years. So by that um, you could wait until the the final year to to liquidate that IRA. 
but by the time that 10-year window um, arrives, you have to have taken out all of the assets from that IRA. So it used to be that you had some some ability to defer that, and um, you know it was it was a lot more flexible in terms of um, when you had to take the um, the income out of those IRA accounts. So it's definitely um, created some planning opportunities uh, in terms of uh, you know how do I uh, manage tax you know tax impact having to take it out over a ten year period. And, you know, do we take it in a lump sum? Do we take it, you know, periodically? So um, just be aware that that's out there and that, um, you know, uh, it's something that you should be looking at. Uh, the SECURE Act also allowed um, penalty-free retirement distributions uh, for certain um, births and adoptions. So if that happens to, to be something that, um, that you're involved in, you might, uh, you, you probably want to look into what that means. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on it. These are just kind of high, high level. And if you have something that, uh, that applies to you, then you certainly want to talk to your tax advisor, your CPA. Uh, 529 plans. So, you know, 529 plans have been around for a while. Um, the ability to put money away um, in a tax advantaged vehicle to save for you know, future educational expenses. Um, so there were a couple tweaks to that. Um, apprenticeship programs, as you see, are now considered qualified expenses that allow you to take money out of the 529 plan uh, without having to pay tax. And then um, up to $10,000 can be used to repay student loans. So a couple, couple more ways to get money out of a 529 plan without having to pay the, um, uh, the income tax associated with the, uh, with, with the amounts that were socked away in that. Okay. Um, there, there were a couple um, other changes I'll just add that weren't really related to retirement. Um, the the kitty tax, if, if anyone's familiar with that, was uh, kind of reverted back to the pre- Tax Cuts and Jobs Act rules. So basically, if you have um, a child with unearned income, you know, over I think the two thousand um, dollars, you know, the the parents can basically include that on their individual tax returns at their tax rate. Whereas um, the previous rules under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act basically tax that at at the trust rates, which um, got to the highest tax bracket substantially faster than individuals did. Um, so that should generally be a beneficial um, change for taxpayers that have uh, children with um, unearned income, such as dividends income and, and interest. Um, the deductions for qualified tuition and those related expenses was extended through 2020. And again, that was uh, retroactive to 18 and 19. Um, so people were able to amend returns if they had the qualified tuition um, and related expenses in 1819. Um, the income floor that limited um, the deduction for qualified medical expenses is going to stay at seven and a half percent of a taxpayer's adjusted gross income when instead of that increasing to 10 percent and um, certain taxes that were enacted by the Affordable Care Act were repealed 
um, specifically the, the medical device tax. Um, so that was another thing beneficial to, to several taxpayers. Um, and that just wasn't related to retirement. So we just didn't include it on, on the slide, but important things to note there. Um, there's a current uh, law that was proposed in Congress, I think a couple days ago, um, called the Securing a Strong Retirement Act of 2020. Um, this act was, um, it basically builds on the SECURE Act that we just talked about. Um, now, it hasn't been passed yet, so it, I mean, it's not actual law, but um, it is important to know some of the potential changes here. I think it. I think it's important to note too, Robert. Robert, real quick, that um, this one does have bipartisan support. So there's a very good chance that we could see this one um, get passed. Right. Right. That is very important to note. Um, so some of the changes coming out of this act here, um, the age for required minimum distributions is going to increase to 75, um, which is you know, a bigger increase from the 72 that was previously passed through the SECURE Act. So um, just a, a couple more years um, that a taxpayer can wait before they're required to take out those retirement distributions. Um, if they have less than $100,000 in their retirement account, um, they are not required to take an RMD. Um, and it does increase the catch-up contributions for individuals over 60 years old um, and then indexes those catch-up contributions for inflation. So um, I think under the current rules, the catch-up contribution um, is, I think, 6,500. I guess it, de it depends on what type of um, retirement account you have. Um, yeah, I think the number, I think if you're over 60 for an IRA, you'd be able to put in um, like, a. I think it goes to 10 grand if I remember correctly. Right. But again, yeah. that was in the proposed legislation. I mean, that, that could change, but um, yeah. I think that's the number that was thrown out there. Okay. Um, and then this also does allow qualified charitable distributions um, from your 401k or other qualified plans which is basically taking your RMD, putting it directly into a qualified charitable um, organization um, so that RMD is not required or not included as income on your return. Um, you don't get the deduction for the charitable, but it basically just excludes that income from, from your tax. So it has the same net effect there. I would say that's something I'm seeing an awful lot of these days too. More and more individuals are taking advantage of the, um, you know, especially if you're of a giving nature. Um, and before you were just simply, you know, making uh, cash donations to charities. This is a, this is a, a pretty powerful tool that um, it's, it's great to see them uh, expand the ability to use it. Yeah, I, I've seen this increase a lot since um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act increased the standard deduction where um, many taxpayers weren't then being, or 
able to take advantage of the itemized deductions without contributing a substantial amount of um, contributions into you know a, char a charitable organization is what is what I've seen there. So basically just takes it out of income for the taxpayer. Andy, you want to cover the cash cash basis method update? Yeah, I can do that. Um, I would imagine that uh, you know Julie's uh, alluded to the fact that you know many on this call are are self-employed individuals, so I would imagine that most of them are on cash basis. Uh, but um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was passed, um, which Robert mentioned, you know, back at the end of 17 and was effective for 2018 and is currently the uh, the law of the land, um, allowed significantly more businesses and taxpayers to be on the cash basis method of accounting, which ultimately is, uh, in I would say nine cases out of 10 is going to be um, more tax advantaged for the taxpayer to be on that method of accounting. Um, before um, we had some pretty significant limitations on on who could be who could use the cash method, um, you know, namely some of those those numbers were as small as a million or five million, um, and so they've raised the bar on that to taxpayers that um, are under I think it's actually twenty six million now because it's indexed for inflation. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, so um, you know, ultimately it just uh, the floodgates have opened um, for taxpayers to to go on to the cash method and leave the accrual method of accounting. So if there's anyone that happens to be, you know, using something other than cash, um, for example, accrual, um, you should be looking at um, changing your method of accounting. And um, you know, along this, along along with this this change was the ability to do it in a very taxpayer friendly way. Um, we're able to file um, what's called a form 3115. And in many cases, those form 3115s uh, require an $11,000 fee that gets paid to the IRS for them to review that 3115. And the IRS has done this in an automatic type of way where essentially you're able to file that 3115 without having to pay that that user fee so it's um and simplified procedures so they've made it pretty easy for anyone to to do that and to take advantage of it they did the same thing if you happen to have inventory i i would assume that most people on this call probably don't have inventory but if you do, you, sh you should be looking at this change too. This was similar to the, the cash method, you know, the ability to go off accounting for inventory, which has a lot of negative um, tax ramifications for taxpayers. Um, it's very friendly to the IRS and not so much to the, to the taxpayer. So you have the ability with that same threshold to go off accounting for inventory, you know, it, it's probably it's it's more complicated than the cash one, you know, because um, it, it can it can mean different things to go off inventory. But just be aware that if you do have something like that, if you're carrying any inventory on your balance sheet, that um, that you have an option to to possibly choose a method that's more advantageous for you. Um, and 
I'm not going to go into 263A, which is relates to inventory, but that was another change. Um, there were some changes too for um, for home builders and um, construction companies. Uh, there was four big change in accounting methods that all happened at the same time in that Jobs Act. But if you happen to own a, uh, a home construction business or a residential or a non-residential construction company, uh, be aware that there was some changes with uh, methods for that too. Okay. Um, so the next the next couple items are um, two of some of the biggest questions that I get from self-employed um, taxpayers, um, and um, you know they're they're pretty they can be pretty complex areas um, for individuals, and and one of those is is depreciation. Um, a lot of self-employed individuals tend to, um, you know, are, are looking to purchase cars that they use in their business, um, and then they want to obviously take um, advantage of uh, depreciation and, and, and write off um, those vehicles if possible. Um, now, this, this area does get pretty complex, and there are, there are a lot of rules related to uh, depreciation and what type of assets can be depreciated and um, you know the 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 method and, and length of time that those must be depreciated but one of the specific sections is is this passion passenger auto limitation which really relates to any um, passenger automobiles um, you know cars trucks vans under 6,000 pounds of gross vehicle weight um, and for these types of vehicles, um, the IRS basically limits the amount of depreciation that a taxpayer is allowed to, to claim each year. So, um, you know, generally for, for depreciation, there is currently 100% bonus available um, to taxpayers where, um, you know, they, they would typically be able to write off, um, you know, these types of assets in the year that they place them in service. But if it's a passenger automobile, um, in that first year, they're really limited to $18,000, um, $18,100 uh, max depreciation. So that's even if they, that's if they claim bonus or uh, the 179 expense on these assets. Um, now, if they don't claim, you know, the bonus or 179 expense, um, which is also just another 100% election to, to write off 100% of the expense. Um, they're, they're subject to 10,100 limitation on, on the amount of depreciation they claim. Um, so this just severely uh, reduces the amount of um, depreciation that a self-employed individual can take on um, the vehicle. Um, that they place in service. And then it, the second year, they're limited to $16,100. And then year three, 9,700. And then every year after that, um, they're basically limited to 5,760 until that asset's fully written off. Um, so if they have a $60,000 vehicle that they use for their business, um, you know, basically it's gonna take them, um, you know, several years to write that off as opposed to um, writing it all off in year one. Um, 
under the 100% bonus rules. So this is a pretty big limitation for um, many taxpayers out there. Uh, and I do just see, I, I did just see a question come through. Um, does the vehicle depreciation only apply if you do not take the mileage deduction? Um, I believe the mileage is in addition to this depreciation. It's not one or the other. Um, you can certainly depreciate your vehicle if it's used exclusively for your business. Um, whereas the mileage, um, you can basically, there, there's a simplified method for that where you just take the IRS um, rate times the number of business miles you drive is your, um, I guess, mileage expense, or you could take your actual vehicle expenses, um, which could be, you know, your, your oil change, the, the gas, the fuel for your car, um, any maintenance um, or other eligible expenses um, if, if, if that was more advantageous as to the, the mileage deduction. But in related to this depreciation, um, the mileage is a separate expense altogether. So taking the mileage does not negate you from taking the depreciation and depreciating your car or vehicle um, does not negate you from taking the mileage. Um, now, just Im important to stress, this, this depreciation is if you um, own your vehicle and it is used exclusively for um, your business. So if you use your vehicle, say 50% for your business as opposed to, and then 50% personally, um, your depreciation is then limited further, basically 50% of these amounts to um, is able to be deducted. Yeah, another question here, Robert, too, even if you lease, um, you cannot depreciate your vehicle if you lease. You are essentially writing off your lease payment and that's your the equivalent of your depreciation. Correct, yep. Um, so heavy vehicles, so this may apply for some heavy trucks, um, SUVs, or um, you know vans or things depending on um, you know what type of business you are using. If if the gross vehicle weight rating is over six thousand pounds, um, that automobile falls under this heavy vehicles category, and and these assets are are then treated as transportation equipment and not passenger automobiles, and are not subject to these limitations. So if you are um, a general contractor as a self-employed individual and you have a truck that you use for business, um, you know, that is over the 6,000 pounds rating, um, you can basically expense 100% of that if you take bonus in the year that you place it in service and you don't have to follow this passenger auto limitation. Yeah, a couple more questions that have popped up. So regarding mileage deductions, since COVID stay-at-home orders developed, can you log mileage starting from home versus having to start at the office? Oh, that's a really good question. And that's gonna revolve around where your tax home, is. has your tax home changed? Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, the more we, <laughs> the further we get into this, this is, this is definitely a hot topic right now. Right. Um, the short answer is, is there's really no guidance on this. Um, there needs to be guidance on this because you have a lot of employees now that are working from home. And so, you know, their tax home has changed. Um, they're no longer commuting back and forth to the office. Uh, they're using uh, a portion of their house for their office. Um, and a lot of those things would have in the past been unreimbursed employee expenses. Well, those are gone. Um, those are not able to be, you know, those, those don't even exist anymore under Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So, you know, this is, this is an area that, um, that I can tell you that there's discussions going on about some types of, of credit or deductions or, or something um, to kind of assist employees and, and, and really taxpayers who are, you know, now working out of their, out of their houses. Um, but as of this point right now, there's really nothing that's changed with that. And I'd say it'd be a pretty aggressive position to start counting mileage from your, essentially your residence. Uh, do you think the tax benefit is better to lease or purchase? Oh, there's a million dollar question right there. Um, <laughs> that is a, um, you know, I think that that ebbs and flows too, because you know, at certain times dealerships and, and auto manufacturers will run certain specials on leases. And, um, you know, essentially it's the difference in the value from the day you drive off the lot to the day that you turn it back in that drop in the value of it is, is really what your lease is based on. So it's, it's almost like you're, it's almost like a loan and with any loan comes interest. So, you know, auto manufacturers will play with that, um, that amount of depreciation uh, to, to be able to offer, um, you know, incentives on lease, uh, lease amounts, and they'll play with the interest rates on those amounts too. So you really, you know, to, to answer this question today and say, well, it's, it's better to lease than to purchase. I, I just simply can't make that statement. I mean, it would have to be a, a calculation that you would have to, you know, you'd have to go through at that point in time based on whatever the lease rate was um, versus the purchase rate. And ultimately the purchase rate changes too. I mean, rates are pretty low right now. Um, so, um, you know, is it, is it that rates are slow, so low right now that purchasing is better than leasing? Um, so I think you can you can kind of see what goes into that that question, but that that's just not a simple yes or no question. Uh, and then ultimately, you need to factor in uh, your mileage too. You know, um, I certainly have many clients that just plain can't lease because they they just drive too much. Um, so that's got to be factored in as well. Right. Good questions, good discussion, good. Um, final point I wanna make on depreciation here um, is related to bonus depreciation. Um, now I've mentioned this 100% bonus that we have available. Um, it, it's only available for a couple more years. So for 2021 and 2022, um, taxpayers are allowed to fully expense many assets, um, you know, I think it's 20 years or less that fall into the 20 year or less asset categories um, in the year that they place them in service. Now, this is gonna start 
going down um, and phasing out by 20% each year starting in 2023. So over those four years from 23 to 26, um, we're gonna have 20% less bonus available. Um, and then it, by 2027, um, under the current law, there will be no bonus depreciation available. So basically taxpayers are gonna be required to um, depreciate their assets using the tax depreciation tables um, versus the, the book depreciation, which is typically straight line um, over the life of the asset. Um, now it is important to note that with this 100% um, tax depreciation that many taxpayers are able to take advantage of for at least the next couple of years, this is gonna result in you know, many taxpayers having um, quite substantial flips in their taxable income um, as this is phased out. So, um, you know, as people deduct their uh, tax as per the assets for tax and completely write them off, um, you know, for, for book purposes, if you have to file financial statements or anything like that, um, it's basically, um, going to start flipping um, as we get farther along. So taxpayers are gonna have an increase to their taxable income um, to you know, kind of offset this, this change in the, the depreciation rules. Um, so if, that's, if, if you're in that type of situation, um, we would definitely recommend that you consult with your CPA or tax advisor um, and just make sure that you're prepared for those flips and um, it's not a surprise to you. While we're on the topic of depreciation in vehicles, um, should mention too that, uh, you know, don't forget that there is an electric vehicle credit out there. You know, many, uh, there's a lot more manufacturers that are producing electric vehicles and, and hybrids. So starting to see a lot more of them show up on the roads and our clients are start to per starting to purchase more and more of them. So just be aware that there's some pretty sizable credits out there too, if you're looking at purchasing one of those types of vehicles. Uh, I do see a question, uh, where can I get this info printed out? Um, I'm assuming you're referring to the slides or, um, and we can certainly provide those after the um, training and make those can be emailed out. Um, yeah, we'll email them to Julie and then she can distribute or disseminate them. Yep. Um, so another big ticket item for self-employed individuals is this home office deduction. Um, and this may be even more um, relevant now that you know many people are working remote and it, from the looks of you know the, the business landscape, many um, people going forward are going to you know, kind of stick with the work from home situation um, as opposed to being in the office. You know, many businesses are going to cut overhead, um, you know, in regards to like rent and things like that. Um, you know, if they've been successful during COVID and staying open, um, that's just my, what I see coming down the pipeline to some extent. Um, but for self-employed individuals, there is this home office deduction available um that they can take and basically 
if you use a portion of your home exclusively for business, um, you are able to claim some deduction for this on your on your individual tax return. And there's two different methods, um, you know, similar to the, the mileage deduction that we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, there's a simplified method uh, where basically you take the square footage that you use for your business and um, you get, you know, the, the IRS rate per square foot, uh, which is currently $5. Um, and um, you can basically deduct that much of your, um, of your home for, for tax purposes. So they limit you to 300 square feet. Um, so the max deduction you can get under the simplified method is um, $1,500. Now there is a other method that you can um, use, which is more complex than the simplified method and you know, requires a separate form to be attached to your return and um, some additional analysis to be done. Um, but basically you take your actual expenses for your home office, including you know the mortgage interest you pay on your home, um, any insurance, utilities, um, you know repairs that you made to that that portion of the house, and um, also depreciation on the house. Um, and you take these expenses and you basically allocate them to your home office based on the amount of square feet. Um, so say you have a three thousand square foot house and um, you use 300 square feet of it for your home office, basically 10% of all these expenses um, are able to be allocated to um, your home office. Um, and of course, um, you know, any repairs or anything that you did directly to your home office, um, I mean, I would argue that you could allocate 100% of those expenses to, to your, home office and it wouldn't be subject to the square footage allocation. Um, but typically you would only do this regular method if it's more advantageous to you over the simplified method. So um, you would have to know what all of your uh, mortgage interest, the taxes you paid and all those utilities and other expenses you paid for your house um, are and um, Another important thing to note on this, but using the regular method, if you itemize your deductions um, and you know, therefore deduct your mortgage interest and real estate taxes there, um, there is a interplay between those two deductions where basically your mortgage interest would be split between the itemized deductions portion as well as your home office and um, similar with the real estate taxes. Um, so really it's it's different for all taxpayers, but it's definitely something to look into um, if this applies to you for your for your business. So this is an interesting polling question. Um, I'm curious if you want the technical answer or what happens in reality. Well, yeah, I think, I think the IRS be, answer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it should be an area that is um, that is dedicated to your office. So using the kitchen table um, would be a stretch. 
Although yeah. I've certainly have been on many Zoom calls where someone's sitting at the, the kitchen table and that's their, their home office. So, um, you know, one of my favorite sayings um, in my 25 years of, of being in public accounting is hogs get slaughtered and pigs get fat. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you're going to do it, I, I probably wouldn't, um, especially if you had a massive kitchen, I probably wouldn't take the whole square footage. But, you know, realistically, um, I would probably be okay with taking something. Um, but that's that's just me. I mean, obviously, your CPA that you work with is, is going to have, you know, maybe a, a different uh, level of, of comfortableness with that. But um, just my just my two cents. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the IRS does, they, they do kind of say in their requirements that it has to be a place that you use regularly and exclusively for business. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, you know, if you use it for, for business that you never go in there when you're not working, but um, that's just the guidelines that they put in place. Um, so if you can get to that comfort level, uh, it can certainly be um, you know, deducted. And I do see a question um, regarding the, this deduction. Are you limited, still limited to the 300 square feet if calculating based on the regular method? Um, the answer is no. Um, the, that 300 square foot limit is just for the simplified method. The regular method um, can be whatever it, square footage you actually use for your business. So if, if you you know, have a, a business where you sell retail and you have one room that holds your inventory, one room where, um, you know, you do your you know, office work or, you know, administrative work and another room that is strictly for um, shipping and things like that. Um, I would argue that all three of those rooms would, um, which would likely exceed the 300 square feet, would be eligible for um, this home office deduction. Okay, and we do have some time, it looks like, left, so we can, Andy, if you don't mind, talking about the entity choice and uh, giving some guidance there. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Um, you know, this is ultimately a question that comes up all the time, um, whether you're starting a business or you've been in business for some time, you know, are you operating as the right uh, entity choice? And um, you know, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of conversation I would say that goes into this um, decision, and you know, ultimately it's a lot of um, kind of looking forward. If you're a brand new entity, if you're you know, if you've been in business for um, some time, it's it's obviously easier to make that decision. Um, but you know, there are um, I would say that. Um, probably about 90, 98, 99% of, of my client portfolio is operating as either an LLC or an S Corp. Um, I have very few C Corps and, um, and it's C Corps where we're able to manage things there. They tend to be smaller and, um, you know, wages are, are not, uh, significant and the, the profit doesn't tend to be significant. Uh, but C-Corps, 
you know, certainly came into discussion a lot more once the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed because the rate went from uh, 34% to 21%. And, you know, it, it really, uh, I went through a number of exercises where we looked at whether it was better for them to be a C-Corp or, a, a, you know, a flow-through as we call them. So flow-throughs would be, um, when I say that, I mean, it's an S-Corp or an LLC and all of the income deductions, credits, everything flows through to the individuals. And so those entities, um, S-Corps and LLCs, and really I'd put, I'd put partnerships in that same bucket as LLCs and S-Corps because that's a flow through as well. So all of the tax ends up being paid on the individual's tax return. So along with the jobs, the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act came the, um, the 20% um, deduction on pass-through income, which actually applies to real estate agents, um, which was good. Um, I remember when that came out, there were a number of industries where we were kind of unclear whether it was going to apply to them or not. And um, so um, it was great that that one was was allowed. Um, unfortunately, accountants and attorneys, we, we didn't have as strong a lobbyist as the, as the real estate agents. So accountants and, and lawyers and doctors, we don't we don't get the 20% pass-through deduction. Um, but I mean, it, it really, if they had not done that, um, I'd have more C-Corps today. So when they instituted that 20% pass-through deduction, it closed the, um, it, it really closed the margin between the 21% C-Corp rate and the, the highest individual tax rates. So it's still ultimately in most cases, and, and I'll I'll throw this blanket out there because you know it's really a, it depends on your industry, it depends on your facts and circumstances. I would say in most cases that C corps are still at a disadvantage from a tax perspective. That doesn't mean that there aren't situations where where I wouldn't do a C corp because there are some situations where I think it makes sense. But Generally speaking, I think you know it narrows your choice down to a flow through. Now, should you be an S corp or a partnership slash LLC is really where the discussion starts. I have on here LLCs electing to be taxed as a C corp or an S corp. I really don't like them. They're uh, they're hybrid, and they're um, they're confusing to not only us, but also the, you know, everybody else that you work with, the attorneys, the bankers, um, your insurance agents. I mean, everybody kind of forgets what the heck you really are at the end of the day. Are you an LLC? Are you a C-Corp? Are you an S-Corp? And, and so I, I, I have a couple of them, but I probably wouldn't do it. You know, I, I wouldn't advise to go that route. Um, I would probably start out from the shoot as either an LLC or an S-Corp and, um, or C-Corp. Um, and just, you know, call it, call it a day at that point. But, um, so then you kind of, you, you got to look at, okay, should I be an S corp or should I be an LLC? And, um, you know, S corps have a little bit more of a, um, I'd say they, they kind of get put up on a little bit higher pedestal because they're a, they're a corporate structure. And so, you know, I've, I've heard times before where clients have said, hey, you know, I kind of like having that ink, you know, I kind of like being a, a corporation versus an LLC. I, I don't know that it really makes a whole lot of difference um, other than just maybe someone's personal preference, but um, there's that to, to factor in. So, you know, if it's, you know, Andy's, uh, 
Insurance LLC or Andy's Insurance Incorporated, does that really make a difference? I don't think it does. Um, so then it becomes, you know, what's what's the tax rate associated with those? Well, it, it, again, it's going to flow out to your personal return. So, you know, ultimately, it's it's not really going to make a difference whether you're operating as an S corp or an LLC. It's all going to flow out, and you're going to pay the tax on your personal tax return. I would say one of the biggest issues that I look at whether somebody should be an S corp or an LLC is whether they're going to have significant debt and whether they're, you know, do they tend to have losses? Um, because there's some very distinct differences between S corps and LLCs in terms of how debt gets treated. Um, namely, if I'm an LLC, there's a, there's a good chance that I'll get those a benefit from those losses um, more so than I would if I was an S-Corp. Uh, one of the other issues to, to consider is if I'm an LLC or an S-Corp, um, self-employment tax. There's another big one. I th there's been a lot, of, um, a lot of changes over the years with, with LLCs, S-Corps, and self-employment um, taxes. And I can virtually do the same thing now with an LLC that you can do with an S corp. In fact, you know, um, for those that you aren't aware, S corporations. So any income that flows out of an S corporation is not subject to self-employment tax. So right off the bat, most people say, "Well, that that's what I want. I don't want to pay self-employment tax." Well, it's it's more complicated than that. I mean, your S corp, if you're going to have wages, those are going to be subject to self-employment tax. And you can't be an S-Corp and just say, you know what, I'm just not going to pay myself wages. I'm going to take all of the income out as distributions. Well, that's a bad answer. Um, that's just going to lead to some problems. That goes back to my saying, you know, hogs get slaughtered and pigs get fat. So with an S-Corporation, you are in most cases going to pay some self-employment tax. It's, it's really not that you're going to avoid it. Uh, with an LLC, everything, if I just set up a generic LLC, um, most of the time, depending on what kind of income is flowing out, um, but for a real estate agent, you know, probably 100% of the income that comes from that LLC is going to be subject to self-employment tax. We can do some planning with that, though. We can create different interests. So, um, you know, there is some ability there to, to, do, to basically do the same thing that I'm doing with an S-Corp. Um, I would do a a guaranteed payment for services and then create um, investor membership interests versus um, active management interests. Um, it's a pretty complicated structure, um, but it's it's out there and it's um, you know it's been it's been tried and, and tested. Um, the IRS um, is really not uh, poked holes in it um, unless you get too aggressive with it. Um, so. I would say, you know, those are the two big things to consider. I would say that in, in most cases, everyone's either looking at, do I, do I choose an S corp or an LLC? And so if I'm going to go, if I'm now narrowing, narrowing it down to an S corp or an LLC, some of the other things, again, that I alluded to, okay, what kind of income is it? What can I do from a self-employment tax perspective? Do I have debt? Will I have losses? Um, those are some of the things to, um, to consider. I would say most often that what I see is someone chooses it from the very beginning and 
um, you know, they kind of ride that ship and, uh, you know, until the end. Um, and they never look at whether they should change their structure or not. Um, every so often, especially if you've had changes with your business, um, I would say that, um, you know, it's probably um, advantageous to look at it if, if you've been one of, you know, if you've had an entity choice in place for a, a significant amount of time. Um, if nothing else, just have that conversation just to see if, if um, you know, you might benefit from a, a different structure. So. So I'll end it with that. Yeah, one, one thing I would like to, to add on this, um, or to just kind of expand on what Andy was saying, there's a lot of different scenarios where obviously the, the answer may be different for, you know, each taxpayer. So we would definitely recommend um, if you're considering one of these options or um, some other type of business structure, um, consult with your CPA, consult with a tax advisor, um, you know, get someone that knows these areas, um, you know, to explain all the issues with them. Because um, there are a lot of issues outside of, you know, just tax, outside of the tax realm, um, you know, administratively, how you're going to pay yourself, um, you know, the, the IRS kind of, when they view LLCs and partnerships, um, the owners can't be employees, so they can't get wages and things like that. Um, I mean, they can get guaranteed payments, which are taxed similarly, um, you know, but an S corporation, you can be an employee and, and get those W-2 wages and things like that. So again, just a lot of differences. Um, we just wanted you to be aware of the options available to you and um, hope this was helpful. So um, I guess, does anyone have any questions or um Anything else that we can answer for you? I'm not seeing any in the Q&A. Well, thank you everyone very much for uh, for having us back. And um, Andy, we did see a couple questions pop up real quick. Oh, you did? Okay. Oh yeah, see the little... Okay, so does it make sense for a new agent to start as an LLC since they aren't making as much? Um, I don't know if, it, if the amount that they're making necessarily matters. It's, it's really, um, I guess, the, the type of structure that you have in place. I mean, it, it depends on the situation and, um, you know, Andy, maybe you want to elaborate more, but from my perspective, um, I wouldn't really look at the beginning compensation just as the only factor, just because, you know, the cost of changing may outweigh that down the road. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I mean, it's, um, you know, LLCs and S-Corps, I mean, it's, um, they both have startup documents that need to be drafted by, a, by an attorney. So, um, you know, is it, uh, is it more complicated? Are there more documents that need to be done for an S-Corp? I mean, I think administratively, there's a little bit more to an S-Corp. I mean, you're supposed to have annual board minutes, but I'd say those are such small changes that I, you know, I, I tend to agree with Robert. I don't think that that's, I don't think that's the only thing that I would look at. Um, 
I think you got to look at the the bigger picture in terms of whether you start out as a as a corp or, or an LLC. Um, I've heard stories about people using a regular CPA and paying a lot more in taxes than they needed to. Are there specific real estate CPAs? Um, yeah, there's there's certainly um, you know there's CPAs out there that are more generalists, I'll call them, and then there's CPAs out there that you know are more specific to a particular industry. Um, so I would say that um, you know if you've got um, you know, complicated real estate matters, um, you know, not, you know, I, there's a lot of, a lot of nuances to owning real estate. So, um, I would say you're probably better off in most cases using somebody that understands real estate and somebody that focuses on real estate. Um, you know, namely the biggest thing is depreciation. And, um, you know, I see a lot of, um, things that are done incorrectly from a depreciation perspective when we pick up fixed asset schedules from, from other CPAs. But, you know, I think it's, it's like anything else too. I mean, we've, <laughs> there's good CPAs and there's some CPAs that are not so good. So like any industry, um, just because you're paying a CPA to do your tax return probably doesn't necessarily mean that you're paying the lowest amount of tax. So I guess I'll leave it leave it at that. And Robert, if you want to add anything to that. Um, no, I think you covered that pretty well. Um, there was a follow-up question. Are you guys specific to real estate or someone at your firm? Um, I, it's not the only industry that I work in. Um, I definitely um, have done quite a bit of work in the real estate industry, um, you know, across all various different business types. Um, and I know I, me and Andy actually work on, you know, several real estate um, clients together. Um, but I think, you know, Andy, if you want to elaborate, you can. Um, but from a firm perspective, we definitely have people with the knowledge, um, you know, if, if we don't know the answer um, to a question or an issue, um, it's very likely that we have someone at the firm that does. So. Yeah, no, I would, I would uh, second that. I mean, we have a dedicated real estate niche group uh, of which uh, Robert and I belong. Probably 90% of my client portfolio is real estate and construction. And so I have probably um, more so that would be construction, but a significant amount of real estate clients. And those are developers, um, real estate uh, um, landlords, and um you know, in some way, shape, or form, dealing with with real estate and the many phases of real estate. So, um, it is certainly an area that we are uh, very, uh, very well knowledgeable in. Okay. Well, I think that's all the questions that I see. Yeah, I haven't seen any others. Thank you both for being here and sharing your, your wealth of knowledge. It seems like it's um, been well-received and much appreciated. Well, thank you for having us. Have All a great right, day. Everyone. Thank you, you guys as well. All right.